Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss the Supreme Court murder hornets, and then we're joined by William Vanderblumen from the Vanderblumen Search Group. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us on yet another cold Tuesday. Ian, I, I don't mean to just give weather reports, but when it was snowing today again, I, I almost threw things. I was so mad again. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Are you enjoying snow right now or was just the sight of snow? Is it making you as angry as it's making me right now? Listen, let me just say this. So on Tuesday mornings, uh, I have a phone call with a mentor of mine okay. and I typically just go for a walk on that phone call. And I thought, <laughs> man, this is just going to make me angry. You know, I had I got all bundled up and I wore a winter hat for the first time all year. I think Well, that can't be true, but Probably. you know, this season and uh, I didn't hate it. It was kind of, I mean, it came really? back cold and I can, I can tend to be, we've talked about this before. I'm certainly in the camp of let's wait till after Thanksgiving to do the Christmas tree, Christmas music, all your- that stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but this year, though, certainly more than any other year, I'm thinking, you know what? It's been such a weird year. If that makes you happy, go for it. If you want to start playing it now before Halloween, knock yourself out. Like I'm just in that boat at this point, and I know that snow makes people happy, and I think, all right, I can get over it if this is something that brings other people joy in an otherwise insane year. So it's the least curmudgeonly I, I think i that felt about snow uh this early in a long time because i had my full curmudgeon on this morning because i'd forgotten to take our garbage out and i could hear the garbage truck in the distance mm-hmm. sort of running you mm-hmm. know like just dragging stuff and it is like the height of it snowing and i'm getting all wet <laughs> i was it's very nice that you're being gracious and wanting the joy of others i was not feeling that way this morning <laughs> <laughs> i have a hard time imagining you going full curmudgeon to be honest it happened this morning. <laughs> I believe you. I believe you. Uh, well, we're glad that you're joining us today. Uh, as a reminder, find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us online at 1160hope.com and our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. And something we've been doing over, I'd say, the last month or so is kind of stacking this first part of the show. Uh, with just some news, kind of what's going on in the world and with uh, our specific area. And Ian, I think uh, the biggest story I think out there uh, is the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. She was uh, voted on and confirmed last night and then uh, confirmed officially today, uh, took her oath today. So she is on the Supreme Court in kind of record time, right? Uh, I saw somewhere today that Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, I believe, on September the 18th. So you do the math on how quickly this all went down and uh, quite contentious. And uh, I would say kind of my take on the on Amy Coney Barrett is that uh, I remember uh, the last Supreme Court opening. I was like, that's who I want to be in the Supreme Court. So I'm very excited that she's on the Supreme Court and at the same time, very uncomfortable with how it happened. And I think we can hold both of those things. Like, again, we're in a very, like, you're either for something or against it, right, in our culture right now. And so I've seen people, this is the greatest thing and you can't be against it versus like, this is a travesty. 
And I'm kind of feeling like I'm actually really glad that she's on the Supreme Court and I don't like the way that it happened. And mm. those don't can't really be reconciled. Uh, that's kind of where I'm feeling about this. How about yourself as you've watched the news of this? I, I'm curious just how many people in your in your own kind of sphere are talking about Merrick Garland. Like, is that is that part of the None. discussion None. that you're hearing in all this? No, no. And and I, it has not been other than when I watch the Today Show or what, you know, I'm reading the news. But in terms of my Facebook feed, people are, aren't talking about, hey, well, what about him? Uh, it's been simply people going, this is great or this is a travesty. So how about yourself? Yeah, I guess it's it, de- it depends on what moment of what day. You know, I, I think that there's uh, I was trying to I knew that you had this in the rundown. So I was trying to really kind of educate myself. I will be honest. There's a lot that I. Like we we talk a, a good deal about how much we appreciate David French. This is like the level of um, uninformed I am right now. I saw him tweet. And he's like, I think she'll be good. And I'm like, oh, OK, good. I'm good. <laughs> that's someone that I that's so silly and embarrassing to admit to everybody. But it's sort of like, golly, it seems like a lot of people are really upset given some of her track record regard regarding certain uh, policies and certain, you know, some of them are honestly straight up rumors. And some of them are like documented things that they're legitimately concerned about. And so I've been trying to like do a better job of like, all right, let me kind of wrap my head around like what you're saying, really two different things. One, how, how do we feel about uh, her as a justice in general? And two, how do we feel about the, the way that it happened? Right. Um, some people might be surprised by that. Like I imagine so- someone listening is like, who cares how it happened? It's the right, right. thing to happen and the results will be worth uh, however the methodology was executed. Um, maybe that's a much deeper, longer discussion for another time. But uh, that that part is, uh, how do I put it lightly? It's At the very least, it's tricky for me mentally, I guess, yeah. to work through that. And I've said this to a couple people, friends who are just like, who said basically what you said there, uh, that, hey, whatever it took to get this person on there, well, then just be ready for when you're not in the power and be yeah. whatever it took for them. You right. got to be okay with it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Uh, it's it's always good to kind of circumvent the how things normally work when it when it works to your advantage. That's kind of how politics <laughs> work, but it won't yeah. always work to your advantage. That's right. And, and I hope people remind that uh, when this kind of swings around the other way, uh, which could happen quickly, it could That's happen right. and it will. Two weeks. Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, and so I, I get it. I get when people kind of go with an ends justify the means. I don't always agree with it, but uh, but I get how they get there. But just remember. Uh, that that sword cuts both ways and mm. uh, be ready for it. Uh, smaller deal. Bears lost last night. When you, as a, as a Lions fan, do you find joy when the Bears lose? They looked terrible last night, by the way. You know what? This is going to make me sound like I don't have any edge to me at all. It doesn't bring me joy because I know that it brings so much sorrow to so many people that I care about. Like I don't. <laughs> I wish I could say, like, yeah, yeah, take that. Like, no, I know that it legitimately really bums out people that I know and love deeply so i think oh i don't i don't take any joy in that at all but i don't maybe you have a different perspective as a giants fan well i mean the giants are terrible so i've got to check out at the moment but no the only one of the chicago teams that i take joy when they lose and i'm about to make some people uh, very angry i find myself i take joy when the cubs lose as a Mets fan. Wow, really? But when it comes to Bears, White Sox, Bulls, I'm fine with them doing well. I don't know what it is. I think the Mets and Cubs have always been kind of rivals over the years. 
uh, man, a very sensitive Ian Simpkins today about fe- other people's feelings today. Snow, yeah, it's the, it's the snow. It's the melancholy weather. Like yeah, I'm just, I'm wearing right. a, a turtleneck, drinking some chamomile tea right now. <laughs> All right, last one here. And I'm just going to give you the headline and, uh, and let you react to it. Uh, first, quote, murder hornet nest in the United States is destroyed, Washington state official says. Heavily protected workers vacuum the Asian giant hornets from the nest in Blaine, Washington, two days after its discovery. Ian, how does that make you feel? All sorts of frightened. I don't like <laughs> I don't like the photos that are included. I don't like the story. I I mean they're yeah. Open this link at your own risk because there's <laughs> yes. there's a thing in nightmares, man. And it is sort of I know that we talked about this just a couple of weeks ago, but it feels like for Almost half the year. Like, remember, remember somewhere in the spring, it was like, oh gosh, and now murder hornets. And then it was like <laughs> silence. It's like crickets, ironically. And then, ironically, and, and then you read this again. You're like, oh, there's <laughs> there's st- still a thing. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about any of this anymore. Just, I mean, talk about a, a name that's like a little on the nose, murder <laughs> hornet. Like, yes. what was that brainstorming session like? Like, how about I don't know, just throw murder in front of it. Like, done. Meeting adjourned. I just that, that to me is. The, the photos are terrifying. It's fascinating, yes. but also terrifying. The most 2020 news story that we can end with Seriously. is murder hornets are here. Seriously. <laughs> so, yes, as Ian said, open that one at your own risk. Well, we're glad to be with you today on a Tuesday afternoon. We're going to be joined next by William Vanderblumen, uh, CEO and founder of the Vanderblumen Search Group. We're going to talk all things church uh, with the, William Vanderblumen. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. <laughs> Back to the common good here on AM 60 Hope for Your Life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're glad that you've chosen to join us. And as we often say here on the show, one of our most enjoyable parts for us and hopefully for you of doing this show is to bring on interesting people to talk about uh, all things Christianity, the church. As Ian and I are both pastors, we love to talk about the church. And with that in mind, uh, we're excited to be joined right now and for two segments by William Vanderblum. And William, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, absolutely. It's a pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. Why don't you introduce yourself uh, any way you see fit to our audience? Uh, Most of what you read is not true. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to talk to an attorney first. Uh, There are lots of ways to do that. Um, I'll I'll try and be brief. I I tell folks I am a a recovering uh, preacher. So I go on and on and on and and (laughs) use three points for everything and Hopefully we don't end with a poem. But uh, I, uh, I I was a minister in the Presbyterian Church for a long time, although a bit of a theological mutt. I had friends all over, never really understood that, why I was friends with the people at Willow Creek and then friends with the people at Lakewood Church and then friends with the people at Second Baptist Church in Houston. And like it was it was I, I guess a, a positive spin would be I had a diverse friend group. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a more realistic view would be, are you schizophrenic? <laughs> uh, so so just kind of all over the board and uh, left ministry when it went through divorce, which I would not recommend uh, was not anything tabloid worthy, but but tragic nonetheless. And thought that ministry was over. I, I, I thought, this is it. I'm done. I'm now a single dad with four kids, and I just need to figure out life hmm. and uh, serve a local church by being a good layperson. And I uh, I went into uh, the business world, went to a large oil and gas company, uh, Fortune 200, so fairly good size, 
and they paid me well and they treated me well and the leadership there was solid and I hated it. Hmm. I mean, it was, it was the first time I'd ever maxed out my, my paid time off. It was the first time I even understood what a joke about hump day was. I didn't even know. <laughs> and uh, I, I was just dying. And while I was there, I was, I was doing rotations. Uh, and the rotation I was in was in the HR department. And uh, the CEO who'd been there nine years, which is a lifetime for a CEO of a company that size. Uh, usually it's about a three or four year run. He, he decided it was time to talk about his succession. And so I was kind of on the sidelines, kind of the water boy for the team, but, but got to be in on the field, right? And uh, they hired this thing called a search consultant. Hmm. Never heard of such a thing. And so they did their work and they did their study. And 90, maybe 100 days later, we had a new CEO. And there was some, you know, handoff time, but but it was pretty seamless. Wow. And uh, I didn't realize it then, but fast forward 10 more years, that guy would last 10 years until the company sold to a larger company. So, like, they went arguably 20 years with no interruption in leadership. Well, back up, recovering preacher. Uh, I served in the Presbyterian Church to, most of the time as a senior minister and most of the time in larger churches. The last church I served was First Presbyterian of Houston, and it mm-hmm. it really does live up to its name. Sam Houston went to church there. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah, like, no, really. When Texas, when we were a country, and for those of you who are in Texas, we are actually not a country right now. We are a state <laughs> in the country, but there was a time when we were a country, and Texas had its own Senate. And it didn't have anywhere to meet, so it met at First Presbyterian Church. So this is an old, historic church, wonderful, wonderful people, filled with all kinds of leadership. I mean, it's kind of, you you don't want to think of churches as uh, career ladders, right? But within our little world of Presbyterianism, it was kind of a a last stop. It was a brass ring, right? I mean, it's a Mm -hmm. great place. It took them almost three years to find me. Hmm. The pastor that was before me left for the one other Presbyterian church that's larger in Atlanta, great church, Peachtree, and it took them three years to find me. Now, some of that just shows you how scarce talent is in the Presbyterian church, (laughs) but, uh, you know, the flip side is the the process is a mess. Now, I, I stayed almost six years. And granted, I left in a divorce, but, but the church is way bigger than me, and it did, I'm not important enough to cause ripples. It took them two and a half years to find my successor, who's a great guy. Hmm. So you got a great church, had a great pastor, had me, had another great pastor after that. But there's an 11-year run where half that time they had a pastor and half the time they're searching. Wow. Wow. Okay. So now in hindsight, I can look, I can look back and say, mm, on the one hand, we have this magnificent church, 50% in search mode, 50% with a pastor. On the other hand, we have the oil and gas company, which by many people's measures right now is the closest thing to the death star that we have <laughs> in this world. Right. So like the evil empire. And, and what do they do? 90 days and they've got a brand new leader, 20 years of uninterrupted leadership. And I'm looking at this going, this isn't right. Hmm. And and the hindsight saying that I have now is, you know, why in the world does the business community have a better solution than the bride? Hmm. And I, I came home. I remember Adrian and I had just gotten married. We just blended our families. We just bought a house. We had six children running around. And I came home and I said, uh, babe, I, I think I think I'm supposed to quit my job and start something new for churches. Hmm. 
And uh, she looked at me. She's been an elder in the church. She looked at me and she said, that's because churches love new ideas, right? (laughs) So, and you can see the look on her face just with those words, right? And, you know, in our marriage, I'm the dreamer and the visionary and, and she's the realist. And she's, this is the part in our marriage where she's supposed to say, I love your dreaming. I love your vision. Go back to work. We've got six mouths to feed, right? Yeah. Yeah. Instead, she said, let's give it a try. Mm-hmm. And so really she gets credit for founding the company cuz she should have been the you know the check and balance. Yeah. <laughs> and uh oh, oh and the kicker was it was the fall of 2008 and I don't know if God. you remember your economics yeah. but <laughs> yeah it's a brilliant time to quit your job and start something new for churches. So so we started uh, with the, what little savings we had, you know, we didn't raise any money, we didn't take out any debt and we literally opened a card table and uh said, well, we've got this much time to see if this works. And, and uh, here we are 12 years later, and we've done a couple thousand searches. We've worked all over the world. We now work with Christian schools and Christian nonprofits and even like the Chick-fil-A kind of companies of the world, hmm. Dave Ramsey. You know, so any, any team that's trying to move Jesus' name forward, we work yeah. with to help find staff. And I just – we still have the card table. We pull it out every now and then and make a new person work from it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's the most humbling job I've ever done. It's, it's amazing to see how big this kingdom is, uh, broader than I ever knew. And I still, I'm still learning every day. And I'm less necessary than I realize. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I'm having fun learning and hopefully getting some good service done along the way. That's awesome. We're excited to be joined here by William Vanderblumen. He is just told us the story of the start of Vanderblumen Search Group. Just a wonderful story there. And he's going to stay with us uh, for another segment here. We're going to just dive into all things church, church and COVID uh, and all things that we see going on in the church. Really interested in his perspective. Uh, That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. And we're joined for a second segment by William Vanderblumen. William is the founder and the president and CEO of the Vanderblumen Search Group. If you missed the first segment, he told the whole story of how it came to be. Just a great God story. I'd encourage you to go find that on our podcast uh, if you missed that. But William, as we kind of dive into the church, you're, you're very immersed in the church world. I'm just curious is your perspective right now uh, on the state of the church in the midst of all the COVID craziness that we've been going on for the last seven, eight months. What are you seeing out there going on in the church right now? Well, let's let's get some definitions around that. What is the church? What's going on and what's right now? <laughs> uh, you know, the church, for me, it's just broadening every day what the church is. When I see our friends at Dave Ramsey helping people get their bank balance right and doing it in the name of Jesus, it's the church, right? Mm-hmm. Then you've got my mother's church in a small town in North Carolina that was 200 people that gathered, gathered every Sunday in a very traditional setting. And all of a sudden, they're having to figure out online and staying home and that's a whole different part of the church. And then going on, you know, we can dive in to some specifics. But right now, it's it's probably worth saying we're recording this at 2.46 p.m. Central on Tuesday, the 20-whatever-th <laughs> of November. And within 10 minutes, this will all change. So, yeah. You know, but, but right now, I guess what I'm seeing, we work with thousands of churches and at any given time. And I am amazed at how well local congregations are doing. Hmm. Great. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm amazed at how well private Christian schools, both at the secondary and the college level, are doing. Hmm. Uh, you know, Baylor, arguably the largest CCCU school, uh, had record enrollment for their freshman class this year. Really? Wow. I mean, that's unbelievable, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and and so, you know, these PPP loans the government did, which is amazing that the government would pay the payroll of churches for a while. It's almost like, like when the foreign government built the wall for Nehemiah. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> it really is. It's yeah. Yeah. And uh, we we personally counseled about 25% of the churches that received those monies. Hmm. So we've been able to go back to them and survey them and find out, how are you doing? And, you know, if you help someone get free money from the government, they take your surveys. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> so uh, what we're finding is almost all of the churches that fall in that category are somewhere between 90 and 100% of their top line revenue from last year. Wow. That's way better than I yeah. would have thought, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and then when you throw in there the fact that they've been closed for six months, their operating expenses are a little bit lower and they're they're able to then pour that money back out into the community into, you know, my friend Judd Wilhite in Las Vegas has served several million meals now in Las Vegas. And that's what he's spending his salary doing. Hmm. So uh, the church is doing far better in a lot of respects than people might think. I, I, I will say attendance is low in person. Yeah. Right. Um, but but that can bounce back. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think it will. I, I can't for the life of me imagine that a year or call, even call it a year and a half of pandemic is going to undo tens of thousands of years of human behavior. Mm-hmm. We like getting together. Yeah. And and in fact, the first bad thing God says, the first bad words out of his mouth are it is not good for humans to be alone. Right. So, you know, I, I'm confident that the attendance will come back. We're seeing very steady patterns. We're seeing a lot of people start at about 20% in person, depending on where you are in the country and rural or urban and all that. Right. And and right now, if I had to give a pulse, I'd say 40 to 50% of in-person is back. We're seeing some, the more normal-sized churches, like my mother's church that has 200 people on a Sunday but seats 500, well, they can be full and, they, you know, right. they're not open yet. But but the more normal-sized churches are having um, uh, less variance in attendance. And I, I've, I've got to think that once people get a little more comfortable mm-hmm. with not getting someone else sick or getting themselves sick, the, the attendance part will come back. If, if the financial bottom were to drop out, that'd be an entirely different conversation. Right, yep. right. Now, now, you wrote a book a couple of years ago called Culture Wins, and it makes me think of the uh, the famous Peter Drucker quote, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? It's something that uh, <laughs> I've, right. been, I've been preoccupied with most of my adult ministry. How, how do we actually not only like build, but cultivate healthy culture? I'd love to know, one, how, how would you answer that question? And two, how, how important are things like culture in a pandemic where a lot a lot of people are doing remote work from behind screens, I'd wow. love for you to kind of weigh in there a little bit. What a good question. I think I think some honest self-assessment is the most important thing, like really getting a handle on whether people think you have a good culture or a help. Let's let's not even call it culture. Let's say a healthy workplace or an unhealthy workplace, because mm-hmm. to me, there are two layers to culture. There's health. And then there's specific DNA. Right. So like your health is like, is this a decent place to be? And then the DNA question is, what are the specific markers of community Christian church or first Presbyterian church or mm. that, that mark this cultural DNA? So the, the health and toxicity issue, I think uh, people would do very well to figure out whether they're 
in a good spot or not, particularly when staffs have had to be apart from each other. Now, congregants is a whole nother question, but people who work together is where I focus when I talk about culture. And, and so we built a tool. We identified uh, in the book, Culture Wins, we, we studied 150 different organizations that were winning best places to work. Hmm. Some of them were churches. Some of them were Christian-based businesses. Some of them were just businesses that are very far from Jesus. But, hmm. but they all started to show us about eight common areas of health or toxicity. And so we built something. And so here's a, here's a free link totally free, vculturetool.com, T-O-O-L, vculturetool.com. You can go there and take this individually and get a quick snapshot of how you feel. You can have your team take it and get a quick snapshot. There is, if you really geek out on data, a a report that's a couple hundred dollars. If you want to go, how did we measure out? How did we work? It's, It's really not that expensive, but we've had Oh, I, north of 10,000 organizations take this thing. So you've got a wow. really good sample size of how are we doing against Christian organizations and whether it's a healthy place to work or not. Because I think, you know, I read a study some years back that said uh, 97% of all churches say they're friendly and welcoming. And 3% of all first-time visitors found their church experience friendly and welcoming. Wow. You know, it's, 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 hey, guys, you know, there's an awareness problem here. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, get, get aware. And if it's not theculturetool.com, find the best places to work survey just to figure out, like, how do I administer something that's blind, that's anonymous, that's safe for my people to tell me how am I really doing? And then, and then measure that against others so that you can start yeah. to work on the hard areas. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, as we talk about COVID, uh, just are you seeing more pastors leaving their jobs right now in the midst of COVID due to discouragement or changes? Are you guys seeing an uptick in that or is that yeah. not happening? That's such a good question. I need to hire you. Oh, <laughs> really? I mean, no, like in March or April, no one was going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Hunker yeah. down, stay where you are, partly because you don't want to move your family. Uh, and we're still seeing some of that. I mean, frankly, who really wants to add any more uncertainty to their world right now? Like who wants to take a new job, move to a new community? Who, Like that's it's incredibly difficult to hire somebody right now. The flip side, I'd say in the next 18 to 24 months, you're going to see more churn in the church than you've ever seen. Because mm. uh, pastors aren't just fatigued, they're depressed. Yeah, mm. right. And, uh, you know, this is wearing on them. And yet it's like, I'm not sick. My kids aren't sick. I've got a steady paycheck. I shouldn't be depressed. Why am I depressed? So it's a very sort of uh, endless cycle of guilt and then depression and then guilt about being depressed. And 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 I think you're going to see uh, some people just about one bad news cycle away from hanging it up. The, the, the other very real thing, I know you guys are both pastors. Mm-hmm. Have you ever met a pastor who goes on sabbatical and comes back and then changes jobs? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, and it's not that they hated where they worked. It's just humans get caught in routine, right? right. And then you look up and you're 60 mm-hmm. or 70. And, and it, any time in life where there's something that breaks the routine, it allows people to step back and do an assessment. And, and there's a lot of bad in the shutdown that happened this year. But one of the good things is it really did cause pastors to step back and say, wow, okay, where am I? And, and I think we'll see as the time is right over the next 12 to 18 months, you're going to have a lot of people reassessing where they should be deployed in the kingdom. And that's not a bad thing. It's just, it's, you know, what you guys at Community Christian, one church, many locations. I'm guessing you've got some saying like that, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> right? Well, I'm, I'm guessing, but yeah, I'm guessing yeah. that's right. Well, here's what I've figured out over the years. 
it's one kingdom, many yeah. locations. Mm, that's good. That's good. That other voice here is William Vanderblumen, uh, founder and CEO of the Vanderblumen Search Group. Uh, thankful for him joining us here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 11. Thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, we are excited to be joined again uh, by William Vanderblumen. He is uh, the founder and CEO of the Vanderblumen Search Group. Uh, we've been talking to him all things church here over the past couple of segments. Glad he's joining us again. And William, I want to change gears just a little bit. If anyone missed, we talked a lot about COVID here in the last segment, but uh, I want to talk and ask this question. Do you find churches right now with all that's going on, all the conversations around race and everything, are you seeing churches right now specifically hiring towards race? I don't even know if they're allowed to do it, but is that a conversation you see going on with churches right now? Yeah, absolutely. And I uh, should preface that by saying for some strange reason, we have consistently over the years been asked to work with a lot of uh, ethnically diverse and, frankly, just good old-fashioned gospel-centered African-American churches. Uh, they're in Chicagoland. You know, my friend Charles Jenkins called me years ago. I didn't know him, and I went to the south side of Chicago to launch his search, and, you know, I was the diversity. <laughs> like, that's it, <laughs> you know. Uh, and, and so I've been learning from people like him and Bishop Jakes and Brian Carter, and I just we've had an unusual amount of exposure to predominantly black churches for a long, long time. And so we've always sort of done that. Um, but but in, in the recent four or five years, we've started to see a lot of churches, you know, everybody's moving towards cities right now. As much as I love the breadbasket of America, the, the trend over the last 50 years is move toward urban. And as that happens, uh, places that were sort of the outer ring of suburbs that were frankly, Lily White, have gotten very diverse. And so it's it's probably one out of five or six calls we've gotten over the last years, not just in this year, uh, that'll say, you know, our neighborhood doesn't look like it did 20 years ago. And we're not moving churches, so we need to change our model, and we need to look like the people around us. We need to reach the people around us. And that might mean uh, some friends of ours that have a largely Chinese population around them that are professional, you know, third gen from immigration. Uh, it might mean Latino for our friends in South Miami. It might mean uh, Asian for our friends out in Newport, Irvine that are that are in that uh, milieu where there's just a change in demographic. So what we realized and, and have been working on for a while, and then when Mr. Floyd died, it really sort of put an exclamation point on it was we need to do some diversity coaching because some churches think they're ready to hire a diverse staff, and they're not. Hmm. And they need to do some training before they can get there. Because the last thing you want to do is just hire someone for diversity's sake, put them in an unwinnable position, and then be left with the choice of having a bad staff hire or firing the person that you were trying to make your diversity hmm. uh, flag in the ground. Yeah. And neither one of those is good. So we actually opened a diversity practice. If you go to, if you just search Vanderblum and diversity, and, and you can spell the only reason we named the company Vanderblumen is because in the words of our search engine optimization guy, 
William, your last name is so messed up. You can misspell it in Google a hundred different ways and it'll come up. So just Vanderbloom and diversity. You'll go to our diversity practice there. There's actually a free diversity readiness tool there where you can take a questionnaire as a staff just to see how aware are we? Because what I'm learning, the longer I work in more diverse situations, Mm -hmm. is I've just got so much to learn. Hmm. Just so much to learn. I, I'm just all I'm, – I'm asking more questions. I'm listening, and I'm finding that, that I don't know what I don't know. So we thought we'd start there, built a free tool out, and we have some coaching that happens to help you get ready and, and to have a real strategy. Hmm. I mean, a lot of people have uh, a, a lot of uh, Hispanic or Latino population moving into their area, and they say, well, we need to get one of those Hispanic Latino people. Well, okay, what kind of Hispanic Latino people are moving in? Hmm. Like, is it an agrarian population? Is it a migration of uh, largely white collar professionals? Is it from any particular part? I mean, there's a there's the Andes, there's uh-huh. Cuba, there's El Salvador, there's Mexico, and like, if you don't do that hard work, you could you could do more harm than good just trying to hire diverse. Mm-hmm. So we've built out, uh, and it's run by a wonderful woman, Chantel McHenry, and a team that she's built here. Chantel was at Lakewood and is now at Wheeler Avenue Baptist, which is arguably the most historic African American church in Houston. And uh, we've got some really cool coaching. And then on top of that, when you're ready to hire, we've developed some very uh, specific skills and strategies around making sure we find the right hire that fits your right population. So you are asking the guy that's holding a hammer, (laughs) does this look like a nail? (laughs) And uh, yes, it does. It's been a major focus of ours. And and we didn't discuss this before the show, so you wouldn't have known. But uh, I think it's here. It's here to stay. And I think it's good. Because, you know, the reason we love our churches is because they are Mm -hmm. some faint echo of heaven. Mm -hmm. And so in my mind, the best way we can make our churches better is to make them a clearer echo of heaven. And and heaven is every tribe and every nation and every tongue. And so whatever I can do to help serve churches get there, I'm all for it. I love that. And I want to ask you about something you said at the very first segment, too. You talked about both in church world, but also in the in the corporate world, this this sort of gap of leadership. But I want to talk specifically about pastoral succession. And I, I tend to think of the analogy of like a like a baton race, you know, and if, if you're not familiar, like there's a there's a passing zone in a baton race. And it doesn't matter how fast your team is. If you if you pass that baton like outside of that zone or you drop it, like you're <laughs> you're disqualified from the race. And like I was thinking about that as you were talking that it feels like every once in a while I'll hear about a church where the retiring senior pastor has been apprenticing and coaching someone for, you know, two or three years. And then there's this seamless transition, but by and large, these like really successful, sharp, educated churches often have these like massive gaps of leadership, not just because of some kind of scandal, although we've certainly seen a fair deal of that here in Chicagoland, but I'd love to know, like based on your experience and what you're seeing and all the research, like what what's missing in pastoral succession and, and how, how can we as the big C church get, get better at it? Okay. I'm going to promise the listeners <laughs> that we did not coach each other before this. So I, I, I've been asking this question ever since I watched the oil and gas company go through their seamless succession. Mm-hmm. And uh, my friend Warren Bird and I did about 500 case studies of pastoral succession. It led to writing a book. It's called next pastoral succession that works. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother heard I was writing a book on pastoral succession and said, are you crazy? I think she thought she was going to have to buy all 12 copies, you know, like right. there's niche and then there's this. Uh, right. But uh, 
it, it's actually been through six printings now, and uh, we released an expanded and updated version. <laughs> we released it the third week in March this year, which was not the best week to do that. But uh, it, it will re-release in in the, when the news cycle calms down a little bit. But uh, in it, we've looked at even more study of why is it that churches mess up that baton zone? Because that's exactly the right metaphor, Ian. I mean, that's just spot on. And what I've found is if you want to play the metaphor out, there are a lot of people coaching churches how to sprint fast. Right. There are a lot of, you know, how do you how do you cross the tape? How do you get out of the blocks? There's nobody right. focusing on that zone. Hmm. And so we we set out to do that in that book. It's led to pastoral succession as a practice for us. I mean, we've managed the the succession of the largest Anglican church in the country, one of the largest Baptist churches, the largest Presbyterian church, the largest PCA church, one of the largest charismatic churches. So like hmm. we, we're learning as we go, but I think churches are getting better at it. And, and, and just finally, not everybody listening is retirement age. Hey, you know what? I don't care what age you are. You are an interim pastor. Hmm. Wow. So, I, and, and I can leave it with that because it, it's how we start the book. Every pastor is an interim pastor. And you think about it, there are really only three ways I can think that your ministry is going to end at your church. Okay. One, you run your church in the ground and close it. And I've seen that. That's not cool. Right. Two, you happen to get to be the pastor the day Jesus returns to earth. Very cool, right? Very, very difficult to get on the calendar. So, so really the only other option yeah. is someone's coming after you. And, and you're, maybe your biggest assignment in the kingdom is to get the place ready for the next person wow. and to ensure that that handoff goes well. So we've built out a practice around it. We've got coaching around it. We do a lot of searches for it. But, but the cleanest resource is Next Pastoral Succession that works. And you can go to nextpastor.com and find all the kinds of blogs and resources and links to the book there at nextpastor.com. Well, you've been really generous with your time. Why don't you tell people where they can find your writing, social media, wherever else they can find you? Well, I don't know if you'll find my writing interesting, but but we have amassed about 3,000 free resources for how to run a better team, a, a Christian team. And that, a lot of times that's churches, sometimes it's nonprofits. It's all on the blog at our website. And as I mentioned before, Vanderblumen, just enter it in Google, spell it however you want. And you'll get to other, you, the only other place you get, there's one other William Vanderblumen on the planet. Uh, he's a security guard at UW uh, Madison. No way. And I get, I get a Google alert. Every time you arrest somebody, I get a Google alert. Other than that, it's us. So That's awesome. Well, William, thank you so much for your time. William Vanderblumen again, founder, CEO of the Vanderblumen Search Group. This has been great. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss Albert Moeller's writings about voting for Trump. And then Steve Garber, author of The Seamless Life, will join us. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us. As a reminder, if you've missed any of the show, you can find it a couple different spots. Go to our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. 
Uh, you can go online, 1160hope.com. Uh, Ian always reminds us we have an app. You can get download the app and there find the show. And as always, get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. What we ask is that you subscribe, you rate, you review. That really does help us. And uh, make sure you, does, you don't miss any of our shows. So, uh, Ian, before we jump into this article about Albert Moeller, I do want to take a complete left turn. Any holidays today? Anything I should be celebrating? Any gifts I should be getting my wife because of the holidays today? There's actually none, Brian. There was just zero... Oh, zero holidays today. No, uh, a couple my of curmudgeon, things. My curmudgeon day continues. <laughs> <laughs> Just like how you always ask if there are any, and you know there are. You know that there's going to be something. It's not. It's not really if there is, right? It's by what? now I know there are. When you started doing this, when we just kind of walked into this, you just started doing this. I would have been like, yeah, I don't know that there's always holidays, but now I've learned that there's like 15 per day. Mm-hmm. So yeah, not yes. not today. It is uh, it's National Black Cat Day, which sounds unlucky, and oh, uh, National American Beer Day. So how do, do you it, plan do with on that? Uh, what you will. How do you plan on celebrating that particular holiday today with a black cat? <laughs> Probably a lot of coffee. Yeah, I don't know. A I don't have any. <laughs> how do you celebrate that with a one and a half year old and a three year old in the house? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody listening is thinking that's when I started drinking. <laughs> that's a great point. That's a great point. So, uh, what we've been discussing, it feels like for the last couple of days, is John Piper wrote a blog post at Desiring God, where he essentially laid out uh, his thought process around this election and where he really landed without saying it is he's not going to vote for Biden or Trump. Uh, And his arguments against Biden were about policies and his arguments against Trump were about personal character. And uh, what what people have really been debating is that Piper kind of said, those are on par for him on some level, that they're both important and that he has to answer to not just his church congregation, but to God about his vote. And so that's gotten a lot of people talking at the Christian Post today. Wayne Grudem uh, kind of said, I'm good friends with John Piper, but here's why I disagree with him in a very long uh, one. But also at Relevant Magazine, we get Albert Moeller. Albert Moeller, it says, has made his Christian case for voting for Donald Trump. So let me just, we're not going to read the whole thing, but let me just give you some of the highlights. And then, you know, I'm wondering uh, where you're just, what you're doing with all of these kind of various articles and blog posts that are coming out from these Christian authors. And so the article begins by saying last week, author and pastor John Piper took to his website, as we said, that said he doesn't feel comfortable voting for President Trump. This week, Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, has written a piece arguing the opposite position. He says why he, as a Christian, voted for Trump. And he wrote, I sincerely hope that Donald Trump and not Joe Biden will be elected president of the United States on November third. Though neither of these pieces mention the other author by name, it's hard, uh, relevant rights here, not to see the two in conversation with each other. Moeller's argument boils down to the, quote, ends justify the means. He doesn't pretend to like Trump. And in fact, he says that the president's, quote, divisive comments and sub-presidential behavior are an embarrassment constantly. But he also argues that character can't be reduced to simple personality and principle, but 
but also policy goals. Uh, Mueller writes, if I'm electing a neighbor, it would be Biden hands down. But I'm not voting for who will be my neighbor. I am voting for who will be the president of the United States. Later on, he says President Trump has gone far beyond what would have been politically necessary to secure his base. He has staked his place in history and has defied the uh, accommodationist temptation and has given pro-life Americans more than any other president. Now, this goes against 2016, where Mueller uh, called Trump the great evangelical uh, embarrassment and said he couldn't vote for him. So, Ian, I'm curious what you think maybe about what Mueller had to say, but even bigger picture about kind of everybody kind of putting their thoughts out there as we're a week before the election here. Uh, let me let me uh, share a little bit of what people offered as comments on our Facebook page. We mentioned the page a lot yep. and every once in a while we will read comments because I think it I think it is interesting. It's helpful even just for us to know, right. you know what is the perspective of people who uh, who listen. So so Karen wrote, I won't waste my time reading anything that attempts to make a case for Donald Trump being the quote Christian choice. How people are blind to all the ways he is uh, monumentally unchristian is something I will never understand. And please don't blast me with messages about Trump being quote pro-life. Trump does not value life at any stage, whether in utero or in his final hours. I'm also not uh, indicating I feel Joe Biden is perfect. He will, however, attempt to provide unity over division and not lead with hate. As I've said before, no one party will represent fully what it means to be a Christ follower. Please set aside the identity politics and see Trump for who he really is. Uh, we got some other comments. Scott Nelson offers some thoughts. He says, I will be voting. Haven't decided whether or not I will vote for POTUS. Interestingly, coincidentally, I'm torn between the perspectives of two of the Christian leaders that I respect most, Piper and Moeller, which I imagine a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. Uh, my hope lies not with any of these four men, Piper, Moeller, Trump, Biden. Regardless of my vote, non-vote, and election outcome, my eternal destiny is secured, nor does the outcome of this election change the eternal destiny of this world that is passing away, regardless of my vote and or the outcome of the election the church will be perfectly unified at the perfect time so the more i think the more i write i begin to lean towards a non-vote which if the pattern holds true my perspective on this may change a dozen or so times between now (laughs) and tuesday which again i imagine a number of people feel Uh, lynn wrote how about vote for the one that has the best interests of our country Vicky says, I vote for someone who leads and is compassionate and understands, especially someone not for his own self-interest. And uh, and then Calvin Robinson, who, who uh, is, a, is a pretty active commenter on our page, which we That's appreciate, right. says that is a very sad admission on his part. A man who is not a good neighbor cannot foster community nor work toward the common good. That's what good neighbors do. It would be better to just vote for the guy uh, one prefers and leave off the illogical justifications. They only serve to confirm the depth of contemporary. Christianity's hypocrisy. And then I'll end with this. Mm. Um, I guess I guess we got a couple more comments. Um, so Nick wrote, um, I haven't respected much of what Dr. Mueller has had to say through the years. I absolutely do not respect this position that he has taken. And um, and then lastly, I'll read a little bit of Rich. Rich said, I wouldn't mind being neighbors with the carefully curated image that we have been presented either. But from footage I've seen when he didn't know cameras were rolling and reports of dealings, he has not denied. No, I'm not sure I would like to be neighbors with a man like Joe Biden. Both candidates are unworthy of a vote on the sole basis of personal character and morality. So hmm. uh, I feel like I used up a lot of my time there. I, okay. I'm wondering, do you do you uh, resonate with any of those any of those comments in particular? The one that fascinated me out of all of those is the 
I forget who it was, but the person who was being very honest and said, I haven't decided yet. I haven't come across many. I haven't decided yet, Mm. (laughs) like as we're a week out. And that person, uh, and you can remind us of his name, was basically saying, no, I don't know. I'm still weighing and Moeller, Piper, you know, Grudem, all of this. He said, I'm still weighing it. And and I find that really interesting because that's one of the first people I've said who said or I've heard actually say, I have no idea at this point. So that's Mm. the one that, that I found somewhat surprising there. Well, yeah, and the rest of the, the comment from Rich, the, the guy that you're mentioning, by the way, is Scott. Yeah. But Rich mentions, um, he says, as I continue to reflect on this topic, I suppose it bothers me to hear Christians like Piper continually uh, judging the president, but I don't ever hear them praying for him. They are quick to condemn his past, but where is grace? Uh, I know that we're all out of time. I have so many thoughts about that, though. One, I, I have on multiple occasions seen and heard Piper say that we need right. to be praying for the president, this one and previous presidents. And grace... Grace can be extended and still speak truth to power. I guess I'll say that and just sort of stop it there because I, I think that's an, that's an important distinction. They both can coexist in the same space. That's well put. I think uh, this is why we want you to go to our Facebook page. You can read the article. And in fact, the relevant article then links to Moeller's entire article. And, you know, read that, read Piper's words. But uh, we would love to know what you have to think. There's some obviously, as Ian read there, some good dialogue going on at the Facebook page. And we'd love for you to be a part of that. That's the Common Good Radio Show on Facebook. Well, coming up next, we're going to be joined uh, by Steve Garber. He is the author of a of a very timely book called The Seamless Life. We're going to talk to to him about his book coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're glad that you chose to spend some time with us. And we're really excited uh, to be joined by an author of a new book called The Seamless Life. Uh, Steve Garber is that author. Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. It's wonderful to be with you even so far away. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, So why don't you introduce yourself to our audience, help them get to know who you are. So I'm a native of the mountain valleys of the great American West, of the San Luis Valley of Colorado, and then the San Joaquin Valley of California. I've lived in Washington, D.C. for 30 years, and I'm married to a very good woman named Meg, whom I met in Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. Mm. We have five children and now ten grandchildren, and I love to grow flowers and trees, and and, uh, this is uh, the life that I have. So I've been a teacher, a professor for most of my life, um, and have written a few books now, and one even has a subtitle, Common Grace for the Common Good. So there you are, guys. (laughs) Our favorite book. I love it. Uh, Steve, this uh, this book, The Seamless Life, is actually uh, one of my favorite topics, this idea of going after the so-called secular divide, this idea that there's – I have like my spiritual life and then I have just like my ordinary life. And, and you sort of go after that notion a little bit. And we'll have some time to kind of drill down a little bit deeper. But would you kind of give us a 30,000-foot a perspective on, on the book and why you wrote it? Sure. Um So I've been drawn to the idea of integrity for a long time in my life, even though I flub at that all day long and wish I didn't, but I do. But the idea of having having coherence in in my life, of believing in an integrity between what I believe and how I live, has been important to me for most of the years of my life. I did my PhD on that question a long time ago, and the books I've written have always been one more take on how do we rethink, recast, reframe 
the way that we understand who we are and how we live. So the first book had the had a, a subtitle about you know um, weaving together, and um, this last book has the language of a tapestry of, mm-hmm. and um, so you can see that this idea of putting together what I believe with how I live has been pretty deep for me. Yeah. Well- what is the danger or what are the results in our lives as Christ followers as we do divide and segment out our lives as opposed to living this kind of seamless life you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's a thousand things I could say, guys, but mm-hmm. uh, maybe just to give you, I can give you a longer version, but I'll give you a shorter version right now. Some years ago, I was asked to speak at a men's retreat for a, a church and it was a Friday night to a Sunday affair and I gave my presentations. The end of the Sunday morning, some guys walked up to me and they said, can we talk to you some more? And I said, sure. We have a friend we brought. He's not part of our church and he's from New York City and he's an Englishman, but he has something he wants to say to you. And so I said, sure. And so he came up and he said, you know, I I live in the world of where business and technology meet each other. I'm about 50, year, 50 years old. I came to a more serious faith when I was a university student. But I spent 30 years in the, in the marketplace. Mm. He said, you know, I've always felt like what the church said to me was, too bad you have to be in the marketplace because we think you're pretty serious about your faith, aren't you? Mm. Aren't you a pretty religiously serious person? And he said, I have been, but he said, I've always felt like I was second class in the church. Hmm. I hadn't really made the right choices along the way. But he said, I want you to know that this weekend, a wound in my heart has been healed. And I would say, well, thanks be to God for that. But I would say that as I travel the world and I listen to people in every continent of the world, that's a problem in the church all over the world. We teach a dualism. We assume a dualism. And uh, it's a problem for the church. It's a problem for the world. It's a problem, of course, for each one of us. Yeah. I want to ask you a little more about that dualism because I, I remember hearing a pastor years ago talk about a lot of us were handed a version of Christianity that sounds more like disembodied evacuation, right? Like we pray a prayer and then we just get sucked out of here 80, 90 years when we when we die. And it, it sounds like what you're saying is the kingdom of God come to earth, the life of the Christ follower here and now. is It's much more integrated than that, that it's not just about I have my Sundays and then I have like the rest of my life that – Work is sacred and parenting is sacred and these ordinary, dare I say, common moments are are like, you know, as one author puts, charged with the grandeur of God. Can you talk to me a little bit more about how how you help people see that? Sure. Again, much could be said about this, but my grandfather bought and sold cattle in Colorado for most of his life. And I was aware, as even a little boy, getting on my knees with my grandmother and grandfather night by night to pray about the world and then I would go with my grandfather to buy cattle the next day and I watched him be honored and respected by his peers for the skillfulness with which he brought to his his business um and I began to realize that there was a relationship in St. Benedict's language, this vision of a life of ora e labora, where praying and working were to be held together. They weren't different things, different topics, different subjects, different parts of one's life. Where I have a pious life, then I have the, my real life. You know, I have a life of devotion to God, then I have to get back into the real world of economics or politics mm-hmm. or whatever it's going to be. Mm-hmm. But somehow, how do you think about all of life seamlessly, as if somehow it all holds together coherently? We're a life of ora 
a labora of praying and working is to be worked out moment by moment, day after day. Hmm. Uh, as you know, as we all know, we're a week out from a, a very contentious presidential election. You a think lot of so, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, you said you're in Washington D.C. right now. I can't imagine it there. Uh, you know, a lot of this debate going on right now, and, and your book really speaks to kind of something Ian and I have talked a lot about about you know how our faith. Um, informs and kind of that's the lens through which even how we vote there might be people out there who are like no politics and faith two totally different things so how how is what you're talking about here and what you write about how does that even inform something like our politics and maybe even how we're going to vote next week yeah well you want to go for a long walk guys yes (laughs) (laughs) Um, my wife and i've lived with this credo from the clapham community from england 225 years ago for our whole life really to choose a neighbor before you choose a house. And Mm. we've always tried to live that way. So some of our neighbors are people who are neighbors by choice. They're friends who are neighbors to us as well. One of them is a person much respected on Capitol Hill for many, many, many years and knew the hill as well as anybody did probably for the years he was there. But one day he said to me, I said, Steve, you know, maybe of the 535 members of the House and the Senate, maybe maybe there are five who have the theological skills to think Christianly about political responsibility. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, everybody's a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a Catholic, a Methodist, an Episcopalian, you know, everybody except the few who are nuns, you know, who say, no, I don't believe any of that stuff really. But most people in some ways say, well, yes, I'm this, but you say I'm most of all a Democrat or Republican. Um, I would say, you know, clearly in the world of Washington, D.C., which I'm not romantic about, um, but it has been a city that matters for the, for the world for the last few generations. Um, I would say that... You know, the spirit of the day, spirit of real politique, as we might call it, is clearly, you know, where you see, first of all, I'm of the left, but I'm also a Baptist. First of all, I'm of the right, but I'm also, you know, uh, a Catholic, you know. And so in some ways, the political ideology shapes actually the primary identity rather than in some ways one's deeply committed Christian commitment shaping how I understand the the volatile character of, and complexity of political life. Mm-hmm. So our thinking, our voting, you know, our judgments are more dominated by and shaped by political ideology than they are actually of the vision of the kingdom of God. Mm. That other voice. And that's here. a problem, I would say. It's yeah. a huge, huge problem. Mm. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. That other voice here is uh, Stephen Garber. He is the author of the book, The Seamless Life, uh, a very needed uh, book in our day today. And we're excited that Steve is going to continue to join us next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always uh, by Ian Simpkins. Glad to have you joining us. And we are glad to be joined again for a second segment by Steve Garber. Steve is the author of The Seamless Life. If you want to hear kind of more of the background of his story and in this book, go ahead and find the first segment we did on our podcast. You can get that wherever it is you get your podcast. And Steve, thanks so much for joining us again. And, and I'm curious, someone out there listening, they, they're listening, they're going, you know what? My life is divided. My life is kind of segmented off and I don't want it, but I don't know how to start. What, what might be a word of advice, kind of a first step for somebody who wants to kind of live that kind of less segmented life? I think probably the first step would be simply to maybe simply, but with a great deal of complexity, too, I suppose. But to, to understand that and to own that, to be honest mm-hmm. about that, not to pretend about that. Um, I think after the fall, 
as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, we are people who are fragmented. We are, you know, we're discombobulated. We are people who, you know, say one thing and do another thing. So I think in one sense, it's to own that legacy, that heritage written into our very bones, mm. and then to find our way in the deepest recesses of resources of our faith to you know, begin to understand that, in fact, uh, the call is, you be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. And, of course, it is H-O-L-Y in that language, but we could actually anglicize it and to say, you be whole too mm. as I am whole. You be, you know, it, you be like me. You think and see and feel and hear like I do. I love that answer. I'm wondering how how have your perspectives on the book that you wrote shifted in this season? Because it looks like it came out in January 2020. And as we all know, the world changed drastically just a, a couple of months after its release. And when, and when you're talking about, I mean, you're talking about a number of wonderful things, but um, one of them being the integration of, of work and worship or, or seeing work as worship. How, how has that shifted in your mind and what maybe insights could you offer in an, in a now highly digitized reality where a lot of people are now working from home and that's all sort of mm-hmm. melded together for them. What, what would you say to that? Mm-hmm. Well, I had actually by January last winter made promises to be different places in the States and all over the world every month of the next year. Mm. And then all of a sudden, by the end of February, it was all off. Right. Mm. So my life changed dramatically, and everyone else's has too. I was talking to somebody today, a colleague of mine, and we both acknowledged in the first minute of our conversation, it's all changed, hasn't it? <laughs> you know, in some ways, it hasn't all changed. The sun, sun still comes up, and you know, winter still comes after fall, and you know, my wife still loves me, and mm-hmm. some things haven't changed in this world, thankfully. But you know, much has changed for all of us, and the idea of, of course, of having rhythms which have been our rhythms over the years of our lives. You know, we live in the Washington D.C. area, and one of the reasons we live where we live is there was a a, a train going into the city of Washington to Capitol Hill from walking distance of where we live. It mattered to me for the years I worked on Capitol Hill, mm. and nobody takes the train now. It's just mm. not even being used. Right. You know, nobody's going into the city. You know, which is a strange thing in Washington D.C. And yeah. so we've all, with drama and abruptness, found it, uh, had to find new ways into living the lives which are ours. Mm. And uh, I don't think, in, you know, fundamentally that the call to, you know, you be holy as I am holy has changed. But a, a different time and place, of course, for all of us and having to think through what's it mean to work and what does it mean to connect with a worshiping community when I don't meet with a worshiping community, right. you know, in the same way I've always imagined yeah. doing that. Uh, um, that's, I think that's required creativity and discipline and probably repentance and, you know, trying to think through, well, how am I going to be somebody who, in my own way, my own Benedictine way, offers a life day by day of ora e labora, uh, where all that I am is offered to God with heart and mind. And, you know, I would agree with you. A lot has changed. Yeah. Uh- do you have these conversations with, for lack of a better word, the secular world? And, and how are their conversations different, uh, maybe inside the church for you versus outside the church? I'm just curious if you're, if you still find those same longings in even people who may not be Christ followers. Yeah. One of the, commitments I have deep in my own heart is that we're all, you know, quoting our father in the faith, C.S. Lewis, we're all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Mm. Um, 
And so we're all really the same people. We're all, we're perennially the same people, whether we have different names and different origins and different families and places in the world, that we are people with the same longings. All of us are. So when I'm on an airplane or meeting somebody someplace else who may not share my deepest convictions, I assume that his or her longings are the same longings that I have, Hmm. that we're actually the same people in the end. Um, I've told us a story about that in the book Visions of Vocation, which has the great subtitle, Common Grace for the Common Good. Yes. <laughs> um, but it's a story about a man on a plane who was very openly, you know, a secularist and very committed to in a self conscious way to his evolutionary determinism and we talked about that for a couple of hours on our way across America. But we came to a push come to shove moment in the conversation where I poked a little bit more deeply into his own thinking about all that and you know and rather than pouncing on him for you know his answer in some ways by the grace of god there was a deep sense of compassion in my heart for him because i realized that he was just like me Mm. uh, just like me he wanted the same things i want Mm -hmm. and i would say that's true i was i was preparing a message a couple weeks ago and i didn't realize this but one of the words used to describe i think it was an exodus where uh israelites are being commanded to remember the sabbath and explains a bit of why god rested on the sabbath and it says that he was refreshed and the hebrew word refreshed there is the word nefesh which i one commentator said it means to be resold like to be mm-hmm. put back together i'm, I'm wondering how, how central is the idea of, of like rest and sabbath to what you're writing about here mm-hmm. well uh, i took some executives from a corporation i worked with down to meet wendell berry some years ago in his farm in kentucky mm-hmm. and we had a complex question to ask him and he spent the day talking it through with us but at the end of the day he said this to us you know if you want to make money for a year you have to ask certain questions but you want to make money for a, a hundred years you have to ask other questions mm-hmm. wow and our project actually was a project more of a hundred years length and a one-year length. So it was really quite a profound insight that he offered to us. But I would say that, you know, you want to be married for a, a year, you have to ask certain questions. Be married for mm-hmm. 50 years, you have to ask other questions. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to be somebody at work in the world, you know, for, you know, a week or for three weeks, you ask certain questions about the days you have and the hours that are yours. But you want to be somebody who actually keeps a healthy, holy life over the course of weeks and months and years. You're going to be, need to be somebody who is marked by that holy rhythm of ora e labora, of worship and work held together, of taking Sabbath as not just a, you know, a mandate from God, but simply as something integral to who I'm supposed to be and who I mm-hmm. must be if I'm going to keep on keeping on in my life. Mm-hmm. Steve Garber, uh, his book, The Seamless Life. Steve, we're really grateful for the uh, amount of time you've given us today. Where can people find your writings, maybe find you on social media? If you're on social media, where can people find out more about you and your book? Well, I never, ever look because it's not a good thing to look for these things myself. But I know that, you know, probably once a week for <laughs> months and months, I have done podcasts like this with people all over the country and the world. So in some ways, they're out there if people were looking for them. Mm. Um, Mm-hmm. There's a lot of my writing on the website for the Washington Institute for Faith, Vocation, and Culture. Um, a lot of things are written there. Um, and uh, 
and of course, these books I've written have yeah. their own life and publishing, and there are re- reviews of them that come out, you know, wonderfully by generous people, you know, regularly, and I'm grateful for that. So. Well, great. Well, Steve Garber, author of the book, The Seamless Life, we encourage you out there to go get it at Amazon or wherever you get your book. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate thank it. You, Can I offer you another place to look for the Absolutely. book? Sure. So, well, clearly, even your best Chicago publishers would say the best bookseller in America is named Byron Borger from Hearts and Minds Bookstore mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania. And uh, I think it's really true. There's nobody who sells books like he does. And if you want to hold on to the meaning of an independent bookseller who will serve you very, very well, more than just algorithms that remember a word you plugged in, then it's Byron Borger and buy your your best books from him. That's great. There you go. And go get the book, The Seamless Life. Steve, thanks so much. It's great to meet okay. you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, guys. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some good news. Welcome back to the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Ian, any big plans for the rest of the evening? It's a Tuesday. I don't know if there's anything special about Tuesdays, but any big plans in the Simpkins household today? Well, it's been a it's been a pretty wild last couple of weeks. So uh, a few days ago, I sent my wife a calendar invite for date night. So. She has not accepted it yet. She hasn't accepted it yet. So uh, fingers crossed, <laughs> which, which again, I mean, you know, we, we can't really go anywhere. But uh, yeah, that's, that's, right. that's my that's my plan. My plan is to do my best to try and date my wife tonight. Oh, that's good. That's good. I, I, see, again, I, I get convicted when I ask you this question because I thought you'd ask, what am I going to do? I'm like, I'm just watching baseball tonight. <laughs> 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 going to watch the World Series. But uh, anyway, one of the things we've enjoyed doing, especially with all the craziness over the last six, seven months, is uh, just to end the show with some good news. And particularly, most of the uh, articles we take come from a site called the goodnewsnetwork.org. That's goodnewsnetwork.org. Org. I'd encourage you to spend some time on that site. It'll leave you with nothing but a smile. And so mm-hmm. I'd encourage you uh, to do that. So today we've got three from the Good News Network and then one from USA Today that I saw over the weekend that will hopefully put a smile on our face. So let's just uh, work our way through these. End on a happy note. Ian, I'll let you choose whichever one you want to take first. Oh, well, I wasn't expecting that. My goodness, there's so many to to choose from. Is there one that you want me to choose? Uh, no, you take one of them from the Good News Network. Let's leave the USA Today one to end. Okay. Well, in a uh, in a surprising turn, I'm going to take the sports one. How about that? Okay. I'm ready for it. Got to got to keep them guessing. Uh, Michael Jordan opens second health clinic for undeserved communities. Un- undeserved. Undeserved. <laughs> <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> An important two letters in there. <laughs> uh, even as I was reading that, I was like, wow, that's a terrible headline. Nope. That is not, that's not what the headline says at all. Undeserved. Why is Michael Jordan? <laughs> yeah, right. Does he determine that? He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to give some funding to you. Undeserved communities. Underserved communities. 
Jeez, in North Carolina. Should I even be allowed to read anymore? That doesn't seem That's like it. You should. It makes me laugh. Jeez, Louise. <laughs> One year after the first Michael Jordan Family Medical uh, Clinic opens its doors in Charlotte, North Carolina, the basketball great and his partner, Novant Health, have opened a second facility with the same goal of providing vital access to primary and preventative care to individuals who are uninsured or underinsured. The new clinic will serve the North End community, like the original medical clinic in West Charlotte, which was built with a generous, holy cow, $7 million grant from Michael Jordan. The new one also offers behavioral health and social support services, addressing health equity gaps further exacerbated by COVID-19. There's a bunch more to read, but would you just love to be in the kind of financial position where you could just cut $7 million checks for people that are doing good stuff in the world? Wouldn't that that be awesome? (laughs) I would like... You know, cross your fingers that this show just takes off, man. <laughs> Even if it takes off, I don't think that's in our cards, Brian. Really? Christian radio? Come on now. Okay. Uh, and what I like about that story, too, is Michael Jordan was ripped for many years about not giving back. Mm-hmm. And we never knew what he did or didn't. But people always, oh, he needs to speak out more. And then so when you read stories like that, you're like, okay, not everybody trumpets everything they're doing. And so it's happy. Yeah. All right. I'm going to take the seven-year-old boy because that's going to leave the drummer one for the, you, the drummer. Right. So uh, seven-year-old boy who was bullied opens a huge, fo- a huge food pantry, making his life all about positive energy. If living well is the best revenge, then Kavanaugh Bell may just be having the best life ever. After facing bullying at school, rather than internalizing the pain or trying to get even, the spirited seven-year-old decided to channel his energy into something positive. Can we just pause and say how sad it is that a seven-year-old was getting bullied at school? He said... After I was bullied and I felt a darkness inside of man at the age of seven, I knew I didn't want other kids to feel the same way. So I asked my mom if she could help me spread love and positivity. And the more I gave back to my community, the more I wanted to keep doing it. See, Bell lives in Gaithersburg, Maryland with his mom and their extended family. Even before the bullying incident, the second grade Good Samaritan was already doing his part to give back during the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, initially funded by his own savings, Bell started started out by assembling and distributing care packages filled with food and toiletries for his elderly neighbors. Over time, the popular project snowballed. With contributions pouring in, he and his mom launched a food pantry staged in space donated by a local warehouse. In the face of negativity at school, Bell's determination to remain positive only became stronger. Hoping to expand his message of compassion beyond the confines of his own community, Bell set out to find a place where residents would benefit most from his message of hope. And it goes on to share about all the amazing food he's giving out and the money he's raised. This kid is changing a community, multiple communities at the age of seven. So impressive. Yeah, that's remarkable. All right. Thanks for saving this drummer one for me. Do people even know that I'm a drummer? I feel like that comes up they do. so infrequently. I'm not even sure I am a drummer anymore. It's been, it's been so long. Once like a drummer, always a drummer. I That is not entirely accurate. Uh, <laughs> all right. So one-armed drummer is now, quote, world's fastest thanks to a new limb that makes him super able. With the help of an undying love for music and a special prosthetic limb, a young drummer was able to return to his favorite instrument after losing an arm in an electrical accident. Ooh. Holy cow. Not only did Jason Barnes lose his arm, but the ability, he thought – to play the drums after he was badly burned when a transformer exploded while he was working on it. Oh my gosh. Now though, not only is he back to playing drums, he's setting world records for most drum hits in a minute and pushing out the limbs 
what the limits, limits. oh my gosh <laughs> pushing out the limits <laughs> i need more coffee of what robotic prosthetics are capable of known as the bionic drummer that's awesome barn's story of recovery began when he strapped the drumstick to his cast and began laying down simple beats after cleaning the dust his kit had accumulated sitting in his garage after having some success he built a custom prosthetic to play the drums one which fit comfortably around his amputation and carried a special mount with springs that helped that helped the drumstick the springs were tightened to a degree that allowed the the drumstick to rock up and down in a similar way to a natural drummer's grip technique. Rick Allen, the one-armed drummer of Def Leppard, clawed his way back from his infamous car collision with the help of an uh, electronically assisted drum kit. It would be a similar kind of invention that would aid Barnes in the recovery of his skills. There's a bunch more, I guess, with regards to the details of the story. But like for me, uh, I love drums anyway, and I love that people are like deciding not to give up and like, well, I guess yeah. I'll just invent something or I guess I'll, you know what I mean? Like the fact that that's even possible to me, like blows my mind. Absolutely. So the last one, a sports story out of the USA today, uh, freshman walk on has three interceptions, 11 tackles and earns a scholarship in an upset of a ranked team. That's a good day. Uh, <laughs> a blood stained black Jersey with gold numbers and trim emerged from the huddle of wake forest football players gathered at the 50 yard line Saturday night, a cut suffered in the preceding, Seeding ACC game blemished Nick Anderson's chin, thus dripping down his jersey, serving as a battle scar. As he celebrated in all his game day glory, the true freshman walk on was hoisted on the shoulders of his teammates for his performance in Wake Forest's 23 16 victory over number 20 Virginia Tech. They're calling him Rudy, and they were chanting Scully, Scully, Wake Forest coach Dave Clausen said, acknowledging his players' calls to reward the walk on with a scholarship. So I think we'll definitely. <laughs> be taking care of that next semester. I wanted to end there because that, that is like the movie Rudy, uh-huh, right? This kid's yes. a freshman, no scholarship. He earns his way onto the team, 11 tackles, three interceptions, and now he's not going to have to pay for college anymore. That is like a, that is like a Disney movie that happened <laughs> over the weekend. Does, does Rudy hold up? I haven't watched that in so long. I think so. I think so. Although, interestingly, I have a brother-in-law who loves Notre Dame, hates the movie Rudy because he's like, really? oh, yeah, but I like the movie Rudy. So I think uh, I do. But maybe maybe I don't know. All right. I'll watch the social network, uh, the social dilemma. Sorry. And you watch Rudy and we'll, we'll come and we'll give notes to each weren't, other. Weren't you supposed to have watched it over the weekend? Isn't that what you promised us at the end of last week's show? Just, I didn't say which weekend. <laughs> I think you said this weekend. Keith, can we get the audio? of? Uh, <laughs> nope. Bro- show's over. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're glad that you did join us today. And uh, if you missed any of the great guests, we had William, William Vanderblumen or Steve Garber. Go check out the podcast wherever yeah. it is you get your podcast. Ian and I will be back with you from four until six tomorrow. Uh, thanks again for joining us. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for